Jewish faith, there is a, a practice that the rabbis will do. And they will consider each morning um, these two ideas. And one of them being, am I of the dust? Do I need to be reminded of the fact that I am of the dust today? Or do I need to be reminded that I'm a child of God today? And there's multiple scriptures that talk about being children of God, but one of them is Galatians 3.26 and says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And this idea of being in the dust uh, comes from Psalm 103, among with other places, but Psalm 103 verse 14 says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Both of these things being uh, God's love and God's grace to us. To remember that we are of the dust. What precedes these verses says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It's this this idea of remembering where it is that we come from and what we are is really just this act of God's grace towards us. And the idea of us being the children of God, being in, in, incorporated into his family is only made possible, as we've discussed, by his grace and the fact that we are in Christ. That, that is our true identity. But this idea of being of the dust, it, with that comes humility. To remember that we don't come from these high places like God's throne is lofty and ours is far beneath him. We are but the, of the dust. And he is mindful of that. And if you were to go home tonight and, and go into a room that maybe you haven't cleaned in quite some time, you'd probably find a nice layer of dust. Maybe it's on a, a bookcase or on a shelf someplace in your home. Maybe it's on the back of the toilet, where, wherever it might be. And if you were to go there and if you were to study the dust, you would notice that it doesn't do anything on its own. In fact, it doesn't do anything unless you do something with it. If you were to put it into a nice little ball, maybe you would would be able to make something of it. If you were to take your finger and run your finger through it, then you might be able to make a picture in the dust. But it's not going to do anything until you do something with it. And God takes us, these little dust particles, and he's mindful of the fact that this is where we come from, that this is what we are. And then he does something with us. And he does something in us. And he makes us purposeful. He animates us through his spirit. He gives us life. And then this, this other idea, this, this idea that we are his children, is there any more valuable, uh, of an, is there anything more valuable as an object lesson, really, for those who were once lost and dead in, in our sins? To then say, well, even in the midst of that, I called you my child, and like a good father, I had mercy and pity on you. And, and I'm going to give you worth that you don't even deserve by saying you are actually my child. In fact, Rome, you know, had, had dominated the world at the time that the New Testament was written. Hellenization was huge. They, they were trying to make Greek of everybody who was in the world. And, um, and there's this idea within Roman culture that you can disown a birth child, but you can never disown a child that you adopt. And it says in the scriptures that we're adopted into the family of God. And so I want to pose that question to us tonight. What do you need to be reminded of? Do you need to be reminded that you are of the dust? Or do you need to be reminded of the fact that you're a child of God? And so as we pray, I'm going to give you some moments, like maybe 30 seconds to a minute. 
Um, just to assess with God what your day has been like. What are you, basically, what are you bringing into this room? Right, we don't check our bags at the door. We bring our stuff to Christ. He never asks us, hey, go leave that. I can't handle that stuff. So leave it before you enter the church. No, no, bring those things to him. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to him. So take a moment to assess, where am I at today? Where, where am I at right now in this moment? As I come to you, Lord, where's my heart been? Where, where am I currently? And then ask him the question of what do I need to be reminded of today? Is it that I'm of the dust or is it that I'm your child? So let's go to the Lord with that for a few moments. Lord, we come to you tonight both humbly and with worth. And we are humbly worthy because of Christ's righteousness. And it's, it's uh, so neat to think about how these two ideas interact. And the fact that our humility allows us to be your children because we have to remember that apart from Christ we are nothing. And the fact that we can also remember that because we are called your children, uh, that reminds our soul that we are but of the dust and that we were nothing before you. And so, Lord, we come here tonight in these places of, of needing to be humbled and also needing to be exalted so that we have a rightful thinking of ourselves, a rightful understanding of ourselves. And so, Lord, we present ourselves to you tonight and we trust, Holy Spirit, that you are at work, that you've drawn us to this place to hear from you, not just to hear the words of uh, pastors or teachers or worship leaders, but um, Lord, that we've actually come to to hear from the God that we serve. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would open our hearts to hear from your word, Jesus, that you would be our teacher. Uh, Father, would we continue to sit in the grace and the humility that comes from knowing that we are but of the dust and yet your children. So we love you, Lord. We're here to meet with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, how's everybody tonight? Huh? Little little low key there, huh? Let me try it one more time. How you doing tonight? Good. Um, I want to I want to ask you a question that might seem unusual this far into this book. What's this book about? Turn to your neighbor and tell him what the, you think this book is really about. Okay? You can just guess if you don't really know.
Okay, everybody got it? All right. Everybody got to say what, what I think this book is about is, okay, shout it out. What do you think it's about? Huh? About what? It's about you. Okay. All right. What else? Okay, our legal relationship with Christ. What's it about? Okay, everybody look on the front cover. What's it say? So what's it say? Okay, all right. So it's something to do with that. Okay, so what else? What else do you think it's about? It's about spiritual warfare, isn't it? Isn't it about spiritual warfare? I mean, stop and think what it's really about. Because it's positioning us in faith, in prayer, to do what? To do battle in this world that God allows us to engage with. And, we, you know, you've heard it said either by us or by somebody else, but when you go to new levels, what do you face? New devils. Whenever you, whenever you challenge status quo, you can be ready for warfare. You know, we just had a group go to uh, International House of Prayer for their Immerse program, which is about a week long of pretty intensive stuff, and we got to hear a little bit from them today. But do you really think the enemy likes that? Hates it, hates it, hates it, hates it. How about going to South Africa, see a bunch of kids saved and a bunch of kids delivered? Do you think he likes that? Now, if you just, I want you just to, I want you to put on two hats right now. I want you to put on, first of all, your logical hat. Logical hat says, if we have an enemy and we do everything that we know to do to disrupt his plans, then what's going to be the result? What's he going to do? He's going to do everything he can to disrupt our plans. Doesn't that make sense? That's, a, that's just logic. Forget spiritual, right? Now let's go in the spiritual realm. Now, when you talk about this book in the spiritual realm and this idea of warfare, so now when you go into the spiritual realm, you have to say, okay, why then do I have to be in this conflict? Billheimer's answer is it's the only way to get you ready to reign with Christ. So spiritual warfare is an absolute necessity in the life of the person who wants to go to the next level. And I promise you, the easiest thing you can do is to avoid conflict, is to not pray, become an intercessor, study on this stuff, confront the enemy, just forget it. Just show up on Sunday morning once in a while. Really, it really is. Get your passport to heaven, right, get saved, and then just kind of rock along in the world. It really is easier, but it's not worth much. And I really, really want tonight to talk to you about, um, it's going to be interesting what I do here because uh, I know what the chapter's about. I've read it about four times, but God has shown me some really stuff. Um, you know, we have to move into a strategic position of warfare. We can't be like the warriors of old who rushed into battle and we had the thickest head and we had the sharpest sword. You know what a samurai does? You know a samurai, they say that a samurai warrior could make two or three nicks in a person's chest and they would die. They were so strategic somehow in what they did that there was very little blood that was even shed. Now, I don't know how that works. I don't know what was going on there. 
I don't know whether it was chemicals in that cut. I don't know what was going on. But I want, I want you to think about we have to move into a strategic level. When you start going on to the battlefield as a warrior, you know, the first thing you do is you've got two great skills, okay? One of them was with the sword, and the other one was with your feet. You have to run. You run toward the enemy, right? That's a technique. But what else do you do? You run to a more strategic location. And you say, how do I gain, you know, uh, gain uh, dominance over this, over this enemy by moving and getting around. And I want, I want you just to start thinking on some of these, top, these subjects because we're going we're gonna to jump into this book tonight pretty heavy. But um, think about this. I want you to go back in your mind. Do you remember a guy named Esau? Anybody remember Esau in the Bible? Jacob and Esau. Okay. What did Esau do that he later regretted? He sold his birthright. Okay, now I want to connect something to you. The descendants, there's a group of people whom God said, I have wiped them out of my mind, and Israel, I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth. Do you remember who they were? They were the Amalekites. The Amalekites. Do you know why? Because they are direct descendants of Esau. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy just for a moment here. All right? You're going to need to take probably some notes because this stuff is not in your book. All right? We'll get to the book, but not yet. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. When you got it, just say got it. Some of you are quick, like like experts in, in, in the sword. You should be a mighty man or woman, all right? Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and he attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and and he did not fear God. So what was the technique of the enemy, the Amaleks in this day? What did he do? He waited till you're tired, but where did he attack from? In the back, the people that were moving the slowest, the people maybe that were the oldest, maybe the people that were crippled, maybe even the little kids. So here's what I want you to understand. This is a principle of warfare. The enemy will always attack you from the rear. He will always attack you when you're weak. He will always try to take that from you which you value most And he has zero concern for you. Zero concern for you. Because we know that from the study we're going to look at and from our word of God, that we know that when the enemy comes in, he comes in as an intruder, doesn't he? And he says, I came to kill, to lie, and to destroy. Now, what I want to do, if we've got, I wonder if we've got a pin for this thing. Apparently not. Okay, we have a marker, but no pin. It's not good. Um, does anybody have a magic marker on them? John, can you get me one? Thanks, bro. Okay. By the way, does everybody know John's a new daddy? So the other night, I uh, um, I don't know how, I was just kind of working. I fell asleep at 9 o'clock, which I haven't done that since I was in seventh grade. And uh, so I fell asleep at 9 o'clock, and I woke up at 
in the morning. Well, now I'm awake. You know, I've just had a good night's sleep. I'm ready to do something. So I'm wired up, and so I get on my computer, and, and I start shooting off some return emails to, um, look at you, uh, so return emails off, thank you very much, uh, to John. You know, and I knew he'd get him in the morning, right? Because he's got a new baby just born, you know, and got, you know, got Oliver and everything else. And so immediately he responds back. And I go, what are you doing up? And he goes, well, let me paint this picture for you. There are two babies in my bed and my wife. And I, I just am afraid to hop in there and wake anybody up. I'm just, I'm just going to, it's better for me to stay up and just not get any sleep because there's no room in there f- for me anyway. Um, so anyway, we... Uh, we, some of us remember those days and are really glad that we don't have them anymore. Amen? Okay. Okay, what I want to do is, let's see, let's pick the, we're going to pick the best ones. This one looks pretty good. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, some of you can't see that, can you? Okay, can you see that kind of? Okay, I want you to just to kind of draw like an umbrella, okay? And what I want you to do over that umbrella is I want you just to put the idea that God is king, okay? And really what we're saying is God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is over all things. And what God does is God creates earth, And then what he does is he puts an umbrella, to kind of keep the analogy going the same, he puts an umbrella of authority over the earth, and he gives all that authority to Adam. He basically says, you are now King Adam. You rule over the earth. You, have, you, get, the, you get the power to name the animals. You have the power to, um, to have dominion over the birds, over the fish, over all the beasts, over all things, you have authority. You have dominion over all things. So I'm going to give you rulership, I'm going to give you kingship, and I'm going to make you the master of all the resources on planet Earth. Now, when God operates, God operates by a principle of law. In other words, God sets up the law, and he becomes judge, jury, and everything else with the law. Amen? Okay, so he is he's set up. This is the law. This is how it's going to work. And part of what happens in this kingdom here is he also has, let's just call it an invisible kingdom at the same time, right? Okay. And what's interesting, he, he has a hierarchy within that invisible kingdom, and on that he had three archangels. And over, the, over that ar- ar- hierarchy of in- the invisible, what did God do? He gave these three archangels, he gave them power and dominion and authority. He gave it to Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. There were three of them, and it's interesting that one-third of the angels fell and became demonic spirits. So we could assume that everyone that was following Lucifer in this invisible kingdom followed Lucifer in rebellion against God. Now, we don't have any way to prove that. We just know the Bible says a third of the angels fell. So we see here that, that Satan then becomes, Lucifer then becomes somebody named Satan. And what does he do? He is at war with the invisible kingdom. But more than that, he's even at war with this earthly kingdom. 
Because at one time in his reign, he had some authority. He even had a throne on earth in Eden. If you want to just jot it down, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. So what happens? God installs a new king, and the king is King Adam. So what's the first thing he's going to do is he's going to go back and rival the new king in the kingdom. He's going to try to get that back. And guess what he does? He does. You see, because God is going to operate by laws that he established. And the law is, hey, I'm going to give you all this, but when you sin, I'm going to take dominion from you. I'm going to take authority from you. In fact, I'm going to separate you from me. You're not even going to know me. You're going to have no relationship with me, Adam. You're going to feel ashamed all alone and an outcast is how you're going to feel on planet. That's why when, when Adam sins, what's he, what is he doing? He's hiding from God, right? He's, he's ashamed of, of just rebellion against God. So he's hiding from God. So what happens is, and we begin to look at this, so Satan conquered Adam's kingdom is really what it comes down to. Legally, he conquered it. And he became what the Bible calls the God of this world. The God of this world. In fact, Jesus, when he came, he said, my kingdom is not what? Of this world. Oh, it will be one day again, but it's not of this world. If it were, my soldiers would pick up swords and fight. No, my kingdom is not of this world. So Adam becomes a slave to the new king. Legally, legally, he has no rights. Slaves have no legal rights in the system. So what can they do? They are under this bondage of this new king, this despotic ruler. Uh, and so what does God do? Galatians chapter 4, 4, he sends his only son. And when God sends his son to planet Earth, he's coming to do what? To reclaim all the sons that had, had fallen into slavery, the slavery of sin, slavery of Satan, of which you and I are in, before we come to faith in Christ. So how does he do that? He does it with the incarnation. Incarnation means the enfleshment of God. God came in the flesh. He comes, he comes in the flesh, and, uh, and he, he, he doesn't even seem to be qualified because we don't really know anything about him except at 12 years old he was at the temple, right? That's all we know about Jesus from the Bible. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bibles now, and I want you to go to Mark chapter um, one, and we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, and I want to teach you a principle of sonship because this is critically important as we move through this. If we miss out on sonship, then we live constantly with a religious spirit. That's all we can do, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Okay, Mark chapter 1, and let's just uh, let's look together in verses 9 through 11. You got it? Everybody got it? Say, got it. Okay, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately he came up out of the water. He saw the heavens parting, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then came a voice from heaven, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, let me ask you a question. As far as we know, how many demons did Jesus cast out of people before his baptism? None. Far as we know, how many times did he walk on the water? None. 
We really don't know much, but here's what we do know, that he got the blessing of a son not because of performance. He got the blessing of a son not because of performance, but because of his relationship with the father. Now, that's really powerful because what we do is we fall into the opposite track. We think we get the blessing of the Father because we are behaviorally correct, because we please God, because we do something right for God. You know, as Nathan said a little bit earlier, you know, when, you know we, we are just blessed and pleasing to God because of this relationship that we have with him. And so we're not blessed because of performance. So when we try to live our life on the basis of performance, we fall into religion. Religion always says, if you're good, God will bless you. Now, I want to ask you this. I want you just to think for a minute. How many of you think a religious spirit has permeated your thinking? Okay, just think about it a minute. Just think about it a minute. How many of you think a religious spirit has controlled some of your behavior or the way you look at God? Now, let's just raise our hands if any of us feel like that. Okay. When we, when we live under that, that pressure of the religious spirit, we can't experience the blessings of a son. It just doesn't seem to equate anymore. So what happens is we find ourselves in a situation. Let's just say we're in a situation where we're in spiritual warfare and we're getting beat up by the devil, and so we just say, well, you know, I know I'm getting beat up because, and then we mention something that we're not doing, right? I should go to church more often. You know, if I would just sing when everybody else was singing, if I would just, you know, be nice, if I would give, if I would take communion more often, and and we go through these ritual things to try to get us to a place to where we can understand how all this works, and that's simply religion. And what what I think Bill is trying to teach us here is that we can't ever really understand this unless we understand this from a legal perspective. So what happens? The incarnation comes. Satan has no claim over Jesus. Why? Because he's not, he hasn't sinned. He's not a slave to that kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? So he's no longer a slave to that. So when he comes, he comes um, basically as the legal plaintiff demanding, demanding or challenging the throne. And as he comes challenging the throne, he comes and Satan wants to throw an accusation at him and said, yeah, but you're not perfect. And he says, no, wait a minute. I'm the sinless son of God. There is moral perfection in me. Now, I want you to understand what I'm telling you now is so critically important to understanding the Christian life. If we miss it, we miss out on all the blessings of a son or a daughter. That's how critical this is. So don't just, don't let this be white noise in your head right now, okay? This is really powerful. So he comes as a legal plaintiff. He comes with moral perfection, and so Satan comes at the temptations. What follows the baptism? What's the first thing that follows? The three temptations, right? Those, he was tempted more than that, but those are the big three that we start with. He comes at him, and at each time he's challenging him on different levels because he's trying to bait him into giving back the earth, the authority. He says, you don't want to take this now, do you? Even demons came along, and sometimes you heard demons speaking and saying, why have you come now before the time? 
Why are you here, Jesus? Are you coming here now to get us before the end? See, even demonic spirits know the end is coming. That's why they're so busy to try to crush you and to defeat you because you know what you are? You are a son of the living God. You represent a rival kingdom. And if he can, if he can diminish that in you and release from you the, the power, dominion, authority you have, you're just going to be like everybody else, just another Christian rocking along, you know, rolling down the easy river. I'm going to heaven. That's all that really matters. Instead, we're in spiritual warfare. We are in a big battle here is what he's telling us. So he comes, and then, so now we see Jesus has this legal and moral right to rule. Satan's slaves, those who follow after Satan, those who are demons, what do they do? They marshal their forces against Jesus. I mean, the, the battle that's going on in the spiritual realm makes Normandy look like child's play. There is no battle when you put by comparison. There might be some of the techniques are the same, and you might have evil and good working there, but there's something else going on here. But when does the battle reach the zenith? When does the battle reach the zenith? Yeah, at the crucifixion, or maybe let's even back it up a little bit, maybe Gethsemane. Because here he is in Gethsemane, and, and what does he say? He tells us there, listen to this, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He's in such agony there, he's, he's literally sweating drops of blood. This is the ultimate temptation. Will you go through with this? It's one thing to not make turn stones into bread. It's another thing, you know, not to take the kingdom of the earth. But will you, as in your humanness, will you go through with this shame and humiliation that you have never experienced in your life? You have never known sin. That's the agony. That's why what's the cry? I mean, the only time you really see Jesus in super agony is at the cross, right? But it's not even the pain of the cross because he could have taken the, you know, the vinegar and, and, uh, and, the, and the, you know, the, the medicine and just kind of calm things down. He says, my God, my God, why did you let me get crucified? Doesn't he say that, does he? My God, my God, why did you not let me, you know, do this with my clothes on? My God, my God, why have you, finish it for me, forsaken me? For the first time, he became sin. He became sin for us. And everything that you and I and anybody in the world would ever do fell upon him. And the agony of that, even though Gethsemane was horrible and even though the crucifixion was horrible, it was the separation of the Father that was so, so agonizing to him in that moment. And so it tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him to know sin who knew no sin. And why did he do it? He did it so you, he could restore the legal right back to dominion and authority to his children. That's why he did it. I thought it was to take me to heaven. That's just the side benefit. Heaven is just down the list. What you do in heaven is at the top of the list. 
that he's going to have you reign with him. He's going to have you judge angels. He's going to, he's going to expand the dominion of what he does to new, who knows how far and how deep. I don't know if you've seen this, but every time scientists get a little bit more study and they find out our universe is even more complex and it puts everything on another scale. You know what corrugated metal is? It looks like this. Now they say the Milky Way galaxy, just latest thing, just came out a few weeks ago. Milky Way galaxy is like corrugated steel. In other words, you just take when it takes that dip down, there's almost as many stars that are just in the downward dip than there are as you start to move on the up. So in, in other words, it's just tripled the size of the Milky Way galaxy in terms of the number of stars. And you know, you know it's just beginning. And then we have new universes popping up all the time, right? Nothing new. The Bible says that he is Lord of all the universes that are to come. You have made him Lord in Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Why do you think God allows this system that continues to expand into, into various universes and new universes, some bigger, you know, a hundred times bigger than the Milky Way? I don't know. I can only imagine that he has assignments for you and I. There's something for us to do. And he's looking for you and I to hold on to our Bible. He's looking for you and I to have, thank you, Jennifer, looking for you and I to understand some things. Yes, give her a round of applause. She picked everything up so beautifully. So that we get ready for it. We get ready for it, and God has put us in that situation to get ready for all this. So let's just kind of walk our way through this. So the results of Calvary, number one, uh, take your Bible. Let's go to um, let's go to First Corinthians. Um, now let's go to Colossians chapter two and verse fifteen, if you could. Colossians chapter two and verse fifteen. Okay. This is such a powerful section here that uh, this one little verse, it's just, uh, listen to what it says. Now, he's talking about, uh, let's just back up. I'm going to back up to verse 11, okay? In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, okay? What did God do when you got saved? He circumcised your heart. You want a cross-reference on that? Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. It says the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. You know what happens to salvation? He cuts away that which is unnecessary and he marks you as a covenant people. See, that was a reason for physical circumcision in, in part, right? That set them apart. So it says in Deuteronomy 30, he says, God is going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. You know what God just did? He did what psychologists said you can't be done. He commanded love. You cannot command love. You cannot make somebody love you. But God says, I can make you love me when I circumcise your heart, so you will love the Lord your God. And here is the fulfillment of that. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ was a circumciser. Buried with him by baptism, which you also were raised with him through the faith and the working of God, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him and forgiven you of all your trespasses. 
having wiped out the handwritten requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So here's what he essentially said. Every legal thing that was against you and every accusation that could ever be made by Satan and every requirement of the law, I wiped it away. I wiped it away. Verse 15, here's the key. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He made a laughing stock of all the demonic forces and of Satan when he dethroned him, when he took his fangs out of him, and he put on you a crown. And he handed you a scepter. And he said, if you are willing to be a warrior, you will see great things. But you have to choose the warrior lifestyle. That's what this book's about. It's about choosing the warrior lifestyle. I love reading this book, but the more I read this book, the more, the more, the deeper I get into it. And I mean, the deeper I'm into this whole thing, I'm going, oh God, you know, new levels, new devils, and things are just, you know, going to pop. He removed the power of death. Death no longer has any power over you. He exposed the murder, John eight forty four. He exposed the murder for who he is. You know what Satan is? He's an intruder. And he'll sneak in and he will try to intrude his way into your life. And he's going to do three things. What? He's going to kill, he's going to lie, and he's going to destroy. That's all he's really about. Whenever you see anything that has those three things to it, you know it's the intruder. It's the enemy coming in. Okay? Now, um, so Satan has the sentence of death on him. Guess what? Remember how we said the slave had no right? Well, the person with the sentence, the convicted criminal who's sentenced to death has no rights. Satan has the sentence of death on him. It's just a matter of time. He's, he's just waiting execution. But what do we do? We live like our lives like he's what? Alive and well, doing good, and, and has all this authority and power over us. He doesn't. We just give him power when we say that, when we acknowledge that. So Billheimer's trying to remind us we have to take some things back in our life. We have to regain our, our foothold, if you will, into this thing. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think right now um, about this, this idea. Let me grab something here. Get it straight. So the devil is an opportunist. What he does, he waits until you're weary or you've experienced a setback, and the first thing he brings into your mind is what? Starts with an F, ends with an R. Fear. So there is a, a roaring lion that comes, right? You ever heard that term? Satan comes like a roaring lion. You know what the old lion is? A roaring lion? It's an old lion that usually doesn't even have teeth. That's what a roaring lion is, technically. And what the lion does is he roars over here, the prey hearing it says, we're getting out of there, and they run over here, and the young lions are over here. So when, when Peter uses that phrase, he's not trying to tell you you've got to be afraid of, of Satan. He's trying to tell you just the opposite. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but you don't have to fear him. 
Because what you really have to fear is running in the opposite direction away from him because you are afraid. So fear is your real problem. Fear is faith in the wrong God. But faith undoes the effects of fear. Faith undoes the effects of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. So God tells us that there is a spirit called fear. There is a spirit called fear that can control us, but it's not from God. God gives us his spirit, which brings three things in our life. When we walk in the fullness of God and his spirit, it brings three things. It brings power, first of all. It brings love, and it brings a sound mind. Satan is an opportunist, but the Holy Spirit is a brilliant strategist. We have to go with the strategist. That's why when we stay in close communion with God, we can listen. The last thing you want to do on a battle when, when the enemy is out there and bullets are flying, the last thing you want to do is run or overreact. What you want to do is step back. You want to be that smart, strategic warrior. You want to say, what's really going on here? Let me get the right position. And when I do, I, like a samurai, can take a couple of nicks out of the enemy and squell that in an instant. Okay, hold that thought. In the early 70s, cars used to rattle. In fact, they used to vibrate and shake. Some of you have ever had a 70s car. You thought, why is this car shaking? And you, you would take it in, and they tried to fix it. They tried to, they think, well, you got a, a bad, um, you know, drivetrain here. We got to take it off because it's wobbling. Okay, it wasn't wobbling at all. What they found out was that when that when for some reason the composition of that drivetrain and the composition of all the metal around it would cause something that, was, that, that they needed to correct, and they corrected with a harmonic balancer. Because what was, doing, what was happening there, it wasn't a vibration at all. It was noise. Literally, all they had to do, they found, was just bolt a piece of metal underneath the car. That was called a harmonic balancer. It did nothing. If you looked at it, you thought, well, what's that going to do? What it did was it changed the hum in the room. Now, people who really understand music understand this really well. They understand that when we go into that room on Sunday morning, there is a hum, there is a sound hum in that room. You don't even hear it. It's created by lights, it's created by, by the air conditioner, it's created just by the environment. There is a hum in there. What you have to do is you have to neutralize the room. You have to bring it into harmony so that you can get the right notes. Because sometimes if the hum is wrong in the room, and you don't even hear it, by the way, the notes don't even sound right. So what does praise do? Praise is a harmonic balancer. Praise what it does. When we begin to praise God, when we don't feel like it, when there's no reason for it, we neutralize the vibration and the sound of the enemy. So Satan says, when he says us, we get discouraged, we get down, we get bummed out, we get defeated, what does he do? He says, uh-huh, I've got them right where I want them. They even start, to, he doesn't even mind if you pray. Oh, God, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do here. God, I mean, just things are horrible right now, and I am just so depressed. I'm so discouraged. And Satan says, I got him. I got her. 
That's all he does. He doesn't care. I'm going to read my Bible. He doesn't care. He'll even lead you to passages that will get you depressed. Satan does that, people. He knows the Bible better than you. You have to understand you are called to be a warrior. You're not called to be a slave. He will take you to Scripture because he knows it better than you, and he'll bring you to a Scripture that is, and there are some Scriptures, if you're in the wrong mood, it's going to take you down the trail. You know what I'm talking about? And then there are other scriptures that, that, you know, God wants you to lead you to or you have to have enough wisdom to say, wait a minute, I've got to get out of this funk. I've got to move over here into the realm where God's praises because God inhabits the praises of his people. When I praise him, I have nothing to praise him for. He shows up and the enemy is quelled in his attack. Okay, another illustration. We're in South Africa. We go to this winery. Um, one of our friends there, you know, he, he worked there, so he walked us around, took us all around this winery, and he took us back here where they raise uh, this restaurant. They raise all their own produce, this restaurant. And he showed us these planters. He said, let me tell you something interesting about these planters. He said, these planters, he said, you know, you've heard of, of, of putting ground into Sabbath, right? And the idea is you let it rest every seven years. You don't plant anything in there. But what, the real, what they really found out is the real danger is even in, in giving it a Sabbath, they have to, there's another way to kind of accelerate the produce and keep the soil pure. You know what they do? They plant mustard seeds. They plant mustard seeds in these planters. They let, the, let them get up about this tall. They cut them off. And then they take and they, they basically mulch them into the ground and it neutralizes everything in that soil, brings it back to perfect pH balance, and they can plant any plant in there and they don't have to give it even a year's rest. So Jesus said, I want your faith to be like what? A mustard seed. You're going to neutralize all the junk in the soil of this earth you're going to turn it into good soil, and the impurities that are going to suck you down and eat you alive in this world are going to be neutralized. So all you need is a little bit of faith. You just need a little mustard seed, and when you plant that mustard seed, your faith is going to find a place to flourish. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about just how little it is. He's talking about what it does. It neutralizes all the negative effects of faith in your life. So I begin to move in this realm of faith. God, I just believe you're moving. I believe you're doing something here, and you begin to call those things that are not as though they are like Abraham did in Romans chapter 4, and you begin to see God do the unbelievable in your life. Amen? Let's take a break. Okay? Everybody take a break. 